Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode from our series of 100 Ideas in Genetics, we explore the discovery of the strands of genetic material inside every living cell, take a look at lionization, and solve the case of the missing chromosomes. The 19th century was an exciting time to be a man with a microscope. And yes, they were mostly all men. The tools and techniques for peering at the inner workings of life were advancing fast, most notably the development of brightly coloured synthetic dyes concocted from the chemicals in coal tar. These were the glory days of cell biology, as scientists sketched the strange, never-before-seen structures that appeared under their lenses. In 1873, the German zoologist Friedrich Schneider was busying himself spying on the developing sperm in his favourite animals, a type of transparent flatworm called Mesostomen erinbergii, when he noticed something very strange. Some of the cells contained a row of curious little rod-shaped structures, which he called Stibchen, German for little skewers, all lined up along the middle. Some of the more elongated cells appeared to contain not one, but two sets of stibchen, one at each end. As far as we know, these are the first descriptions of what later came to be known as chromosomes, the long strings of DNA inside cells. Sadly, very few people came to know about the discovery at the time. Schneider was apparently far more fond of talking than writing, eventually publishing his descriptions of the little stibchen in a dense paper about flatworm biology in a little red yearbook of the Upper Hesse Society for Natural and Medical Science. The next German microscopist in our story is Walter Fleming, who'd become fascinated with the dark material inside the middle of every cell. That's a structure known as the nucleus. He named it chromatin, after the Greek word for colour, in reference to the way this substance soaked up coloured stains. Sifting through preparations of salamander cells, Fleming described how this chromatin rearranged itself into long threads as a cell got ready to divide, then appeared to be split between each new cell as they separated, so each one got an equal share. Fleming referred to this process as karyomitosis and the thin threads as mitosin, publishing his key observations in 1882 in a hefty book entitled Zellsubstanz, Kern und Zellteilung, that's cell substance, nucleus and cell division, which laid the foundations for the decades of research into cell division that were to come afterwards. But while we still use the word mitosis today to describe the process of cell division, it took another German scientist, Heinrich Wilhelm Woldeyer, to come up with a catchier name for the strands of coloured chromatin. And so the word chromosome was born. But it would take many more years for scientists to discover what these little strands were made of and that they contained the secrets of life. At the turn of the 20th century, biology was running along two parallel strands. On the one side were microscopists like Fleming and Schneider, carefully fixing and staining all sorts of specimens of eggs and sperm, from salamanders to sea urchins, to spy on the hidden mysteries inside cells. On the other side were the geneticists, exemplified by William Bateson in the UK and Thomas Hunt Morgan in the US. 
Inspired by Mendel's experiments with peas, which had only just been rediscovered, they were busy breeding fruit flies, chickens and anything else they could get their hands on to work out how characteristics and traits were passed down the generations through the actions of these newfangled units of inheritance that they'd just invented, known as genes. At the time, a gene was a hypothetical device for explaining inheritance patterns rather than any kind of molecular entity. Being good biologists, all of them knew that babies of any species are made when mummy and daddy love each other very much, bringing together egg and sperm. The geneticists knew that certain combinations of genes were passed on from parents to offspring in these special cells. And it was obvious to the cell biologists that correctly separating chromosomes into developing sex cells was an essential part of the process. But it was hard to figure out the connection between the two. Eventually, American geneticist Walter Sutton and German microscopist Theodore Bovary figured it out at the same time, thousands of miles apart. Uh Uh The behaviour of genes segregating from parents to offspring exactly mirrored the behaviour of chromosomes. Genes, therefore, must be physical entities within the chromosomes. There are two pairs of each chromosome in every cell, one from mum and one from dad which are segregated into eggs and sperm when these cells are made, only to be reunited in new combinations at fertilisation, when mummy and daddy love each other very much. Looking back, it seems so obvious that you might think that that would be the end of it. But you'd be wrong. The Sutton Bovary chromosome theory was hugely controversial, and the debate raged on for years. One of the first objections was that the stringy chromosomes weren't always present inside cells. Most of the time, the nucleus was just a blob of darkly stained chromatin, with not a single little stibchen to be seen. We now know that chromosomes only pack down into their characteristic rod shapes during cell division, coiling and supercoiling to create the structures that the early German microscope men could so clearly detect. The rest of the time, they relax and unwind, wriggling around in the nucleus like a writhing mess of biological string, loosely organised into their own particular territories. The other objection was that one chromosome looks very much like another in some organisms, making it hard to be sure that there were specific pairs of chromosomes inside cells, which matched up and separated into new cells as they divided, rather than a more general biological pick-and-mix, where random chromosomes were distributed. Eventually, the confusion got sorted out. Living cells contain matching pairs of chromosomes, made of long strings of DNA, and genes are specific stretches of code within them. There are regular old autosomes, which make up most of the genome, and then there are sex chromosomes, first discovered in 1905 by Nettie Stevens. Aha! This is a special pair of chromosomes that come in different varieties, X or Y in humans and other mammals, and are responsible for determining genetic sex. Overall, the number of chromosome pairs depends on the species, with fruit flies having just four pairs, and a chicken blessed with an impressive 39. (coughs) And as we all know, humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. That's 46 in total. But that wasn't always the case, as we'll find out next. The 
This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and it would be really great if you could rate and review the show. And please do spread the word. Do tell all your friends so more people can discover it. In the 1920s, American zoologist Theophilus Painter was hard at work in his lab at the University of Texas in Austin, trying to discover the secrets of sex chromosomes by slicing up human testicles. He even went as far as to invent a special knife made of multiple razor blades, all the better to slice thin sections of testicular tissue and maintain the detailed structures of the cells and the chromosomes within the developing sperm. Realising that nobody had definitively proved how many chromosomes humans have, he set about searching through slices of human testicles under the microscope, trying to count the chromosomes within the tangled mass. One, two, three. In 1923, four, he published five, his results. Six, Sperm contained 24 seven, chromosomes. Eight, so, if nine, there were an equal number coming from the egg, then humans must have 48 chromosomes in total. That's 24 pairs. Case closed. Other researchers were perplexed. Some thought humans had 19 pairs of chromosomes. Others were sure there were 23. But Painter was absolutely convinced that he had the right number, and he had found more than anyone else. So maybe they just weren't counting carefully enough, or their cells had somehow lost a couple of chromosomes along the way. Books and teaching materials were produced to show off painters' chromosomes, labelled with the magic number of 24. And so it was. Humans have 48 chromosomes, 24 pairs, and that's the end of that. 46. 47. 48. But something didn't seem right. Thirty years later, researchers at the University of Lund in southern Sweden decided to investigate. The gumshoes on this scientific case were Albert Levan and Joe Hin Chiu, a plant breeder and keen photographer born in Indonesia in 1919, who was imprisoned and tortured by the Japanese in World War II. In search of a new life, Chiu came to Europe to continue his interest in plant genetics, and that's how he came to team up with Levan to solve the mystery of the missing human chromosomes. During the 1930s, Levin had been developing new techniques for studying the damaged chromosomes in the roots of plants that had been exposed to toxic chemicals. But then he noticed an unusual similarity with the damaged chromosomes that were often seen in cancer cells. He set up a lab in Lund and switched his focus to understanding how faulty chromosomes could contribute to human cancers. And he brought Cho in to help. But to understand what happens when things go wrong you need to know what happens when things go right. Up until that point, nobody had questioned that Painter's magic number of 48 human chromosomes might be wrong. But Levan and Chio decided to double-check, just to be sure that their comparisons with cancer cells were correct. There had been a few technical advances over the intervening 30 years. 
One was to put cells in a very dilute liquid to make them swell up, spreading out their chromosomes for easier counting. Another was Levin's pioneering idea of using colchicine, a chemical made in crocuses, which halts cells during the process of division, just at that point where their chromosomes are neatly condensed and paired up. Another factor was practical rather than technical. Up until that point, the only cells that reliably grew in the lab had been collected from cancer samples, making them no good for counting the correct number of chromosomes in healthy cells. Cells collected from adult tissue didn't grow or multiply very well, making it impossible to see the condensed chromosomes that were only present during cell division. But Sweden was one of the few countries at the time where abortion was legal, so Levan and Chio were able to get hold of human embryonic cells that grew easily in the lab, creating a reliable supply of rapidly dividing healthy cells with a normal number of chromosomes. The stage was set for the great chromosome count. The first hints that the magic number might be 46, not 48, actually came from Levan and Chio's colleagues in Lund, Evan and Ungve Melander. They'd been looking at fast-growing cells in embryo liver, squashed down onto glass slides, and were convinced that Painter's original count was wrong. But for some reason, they decided not to publish, instead telling Levan about their discovery so that his team could investigate further. Throughout 1955, both Levan and Chio were travelling so much that it's hard to see how they found time to do any experiments. But Chio had a habit of working through the night, using his photography skills to take high-quality photographs of chromosome preparations from embryonic lung cells. And at 2am on December the 22nd, 1955, he snapped his crucial picture, clearly showing 46 chromosomes. After looking at a further 250 or so cells, all with exactly the same number of 46, the truth became unavoidable. Levin and Chio published their findings early in 1956, after a brief tussle over authorship of the paper, correcting an error that had persisted for more than three decades. I find it amazing to think that even as Rosalind Franklin and her graduate student Ray Gosling were snapping the photograph that would be used to figure out the structure of DNA in 1952, nobody knew the correct number of chromosomes in the human genome. It's an impressive example of scientific groupthink. Even though other groups had felt sure that 46 was probably the correct count, Painter had managed to persuade everyone to believe him rather than the evidence of their own eyes. Several other researchers who'd published papers backing up the claim of 48 had to back down and admit they were wrong. As Peter Harper points out in a review looking back over the saga of the chromosome count, this is an important general issue for science, since it shows how, with the uncertainty resulting from inadequate technology prior to the 1956 study, a remarkable degree of subjectivity can enter into apparently unbiased analysis – later studies attempting to agree with previously accepted conclusions, even when the facts did not justify this. The publication of the correct number of human chromosomes, together with the improved methods for preparing them so that each one could clearly be seen, set the stage for the modern science of human cytogenetics. 
It's easy to forget in today's era of high-throughput DNA sequencing, but for a long time, the only way of studying diseases like cancer that are caused by genetic rearrangements and mutations was to look directly at the chromosomes themselves. Researchers developed techniques for studying the internal structures of chromosomes, spotting rearrangements and changes that led to disease. First of all, there was G-banding, using a special stain known as Giemsa that prefers to stick to parts of DNA that are particularly rich in A's and T's. By carefully looking at the changes in the patterns of stripes in the chromosomes, scientists were able to start getting a handle on the chromosomal alterations underpinning cancer and other conditions. Next came fluorescence in situ hybridisation, or FISH, a way of highlighting specific genes with brightly coloured probes. And after that came spectral karyotyping, painting every single chromosome a different colour to reveal the genetic chaos in cancer. The first specific chromosomal change to be noticed in cancer cells was a strange stubby structure first spotted in 1959 by David Hungerford and Peter Noel in Philadelphia. This minute, or Philadelphia chromosome as it came to be known, consistently turns up in chronic myeloid leukaemia, and it's created when parts of chromosomes 9 and 22 get switched around. Efforts to target the overactive cancer-driving gene that's accidentally produced by this fusion led to the development of Gleevec, arguably one of the most successful cancer drugs ever invented. In 1959, Jerome Lejeune and Martha Gauthier revealed their discovery that Down syndrome is caused by carrying an extra copy of chromosome 21, known as trisomy, the first time that a condition like Down's had been linked to a chromosomal abnormality. This is also another story of a woman whose contribution to science has been overlooked, as Martha claims to have done the bulk of the work and was the first person to make the discovery, while Jerome took the credit. But that's probably a tale for another day. Finally, I'll leave you with the words of Albert Levan, who said that after spending 50 years of his life looking at human chromosomes, he regarded them as his friends. Stevens had always loved biology. Born in Vermont in 1861, her research career got off to a slow start due to a lack of opportunities for women to study science in the late 19th century, and having to wait to do a degree and a PhD until she'd saved enough money through long stints of teaching. But by the age of 39, she was able to pursue a research career, choosing to focus on the exciting new science of genetics and the fascinating chromosomes that had recently been discovered. And in 1905, she made an important discovery of her own. While studying the chromosomes in the eggs and sperm of beetles, she realised that while most of the pairs were all the same, there were two that were mismatched, a pair of little and large she called the bigger of the two the X chromosome and the smaller one Y. Sperm appeared to contain either an X or a Y chromosome, while eggs only ever had one X. The same thing was true in the eggs and sperm of fruit flies. Therefore, Nettie concluded, being genetically male or female depended on the combination of these unusual chromosomes, 
XY making males and XX making females, and that the sex of the offspring was dependent on whether an X or a Y chromosome had come along in the sperm. For a long time, the credit for this discovery actually went to Edmund Wilson, who'd made similar observations around the same time, but come to slightly wrong conclusions about them. He was working on a species of insect where the male sex chromosome is actually missing. And he also thought that sex determination had more to do with the environment, unlike Nettie's theory that it was entirely down to the chromosomes. Sadly, she died of breast cancer in 1912, and because Wilson published his paper first, he got much of the glory. But Nettie's theory of sex chromosomes turned out to hold true across a huge range of species, although not all use the same version of the X and Y system. For example, birds have W and Z chromosomes, with males being ZZ and females ZW. We also now know that the same kind of XY sex determination system that she discovered in beetles is at work in mammals, including humans. But the discovery of sex chromosomes raises an interesting question. If females have two X chromosomes, then that means they have a double dose of all the genes on that chromosome compared with males. So how does that work? The answer came from a woman named Mary Lyon, working at the MRC's genetics unit in Oxfordshire, and some strangely patterned mice. While carrying out experiments looking at the impact of radiation on mice, Mary noticed an unusual male mouse with a splotchy, mottled coat. When she started breeding him with normal females in the hope of getting some blotchy babies, she noticed something odd. Around half of the males carrying the mutation died during development in the womb, while the survivors were all born with pure white coats. But female offspring all had blotchy coats, just like their dad. She figured out that the mutation must be carried on one of the X chromosomes in the female pups, eventually realising that one copy of the X must be randomly switched off in small groups of stem cells very early on in development in the womb, giving them the mottled pattern. In males, inheriting a normal X chromosome from mum was fine, but inheriting a faulty X meant that all their cells would be faulty too, causing a fatal developmental error. Despite the mutation, the normal, non-mutated X chromosome in females was functioning in enough of their cells to act as a backup, so all the females survived. In 1961, Mary published her discovery. Despite resistance from sceptics who didn't understand how X inactivation early on in development could give rise to the kind of patterns she was seeing, and didn't believe that Mary was an established or important enough scientist to have made such a discovery, her idea was subsequently shown to be correct. In fact, the process of X inactivation is sometimes known as lionisation in her honour. Since then, the molecular mechanisms behind X inactivation have been mapped out in exquisite detail. The main player is a gene called Xist, X-I-S-T, which is found on the X chromosome. Very early on in development, when an embryo is nothing more than a ball of cells, each cell somehow counts how many copies of the X chromosome are present. If there are two, then one gets randomly switched off. 
The inactive X gets coated in long RNA molecules made from the exist gene and is tightly packed down and shoved into a corner of the nucleus, leaving just one active X chromosome. Because this process is happening independently in all the cells in the early embryo, a female foetus ends up being a mosaic of cells in which one or other of her X chromosomes is inactive. Because females have two X chromosomes, which are randomly inactivated throughout the body, they effectively have a backup copy of all the genes on the X, while males don't. This leads to a number of what's known as X-linked diseases and traits, where only males in a family are affected, while females can carry the faulty X chromosome but not be seriously affected thanks to their backup copy. X-linked conditions include the blood clotting disorder haemophilia, which affected the male descendants of Queen Victoria for three generations, the muscle-wasting disease Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and colour blindness. Unusual conditions can still arise in females due to X chromosome mosaicism. In 1901, German dermatologist Alfred Blaschko noticed that certain skin conditions all seem to follow the same sweeping lines running across the chest and along the arms and legs, similar to the stripes on a tiger or a brindled dog. These stripes correspond to the paths taken by skin cells as a foetus grows in the womb, and they're completely invisible in most people. But in females with faults in pigmentation genes on one of their two X chromosomes, Random X inactivation means that some cells have the functioning gene, while others don't, creating tiger stripes of genetically different skin cells across the body. But if you want to really see X inactivation in action, look no further than a tortoiseshell cat, which, unsurprisingly, Mary Lyon owned. Blotchy tortoise shells, also known as calico cats, are good luck charms in many parts of the world. Their multicolour coats are due to a gene found on the X chromosome that exists in two different versions or variants, making either black or orange fur. A female kitten randomly switches off one or other of her two X chromosomes in different cells as she grows in the womb. So if she inherits one orange and one black fur variant on each of her two Xs, they'll create characteristic blotches as her fur grows. Because male cats have just one X chromosome which is always active, they only have one of the coat colour variants, orange or black, painting a jet black or a ginger tom. Male tortoiseshell cats do exist, but they're extremely rare and usually turn out to have a Y chromosome and two Xs, one orange and one black, giving them the characteristic coat. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip or email me podcast at geneticsunzip.com with any questions and feedback. Please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and do spread the word so that more people can listen and enjoy these stories. 
Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and is produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.